everybody. Welcome to Church History for Chumps. My name is John Simon. And I'm Thomas Duell. And uh, and yeah, it's been a little while. Actually, it hasn't been a little while, Thomas. It it's We've been recording for the... For the drop the night after. No, yeah, we're we've been in the trenches week after week. <laughs> yeah, we've got to we've got to build up our buffer again, man. Yeah, it's been a little a little tense, but you know what that means? It means that these these podcasts are coming out fresh out of the oven. Yeah, and we're starting to get some kind of like hand to mouth uh, podcast where it's like you request it, we record it. Kind yeah, of thing. you yeah, it's pop tart. Popcat sting is what they call it, I believe. <laughs> yeah, just pop it in the toaster and bada bing, bada boom, hot and ready for serving. So, uh, so Thomas, what are we? What are we on tonight, dude? This is actually it's kind of your topic. We've been we've been kind of ping ponging back and forth. So this one's this one's up your alley. Yeah, I think that's worked pretty well because it feels like we're it feels like it's truly an educational pod. You yeah. know, we're like one of us has become a a armchair expert on a topic and then get to share drop that knowledge on on the other and i can just be the ottoman expert just sitting there yeah letting you put your feet up and i think I've, you always strike me as more of a love seat expert kind of guy <laughs> but like by yourself on the love seat yeah okay all right yeah not like in a loner way because you are married yeah. <laughs> yeah i am married but my wife's not there it's yeah. just me mm-hmm. yeah just kicking my feet up on the love seat i feel like this one uh you probably have some sort of idea about this guy at least just because he's so kind of prolific in in church history in a variety of different ways but uh how familiar do you feel like you are with saint francis of assisi well i'll tell you the the funny thing is that i know that there is a widely attributed quote to francis of assisi that i don't think he actually said okay you know what quote i'm talking about uh, maybe what what do you think it's uh preach the gospel and if necessary use words oh does that what people say that oh, i've heard that people say that's francis yeah man and i think it's why it's been widely debunked yeah as that not doesn't being from him as i've learned about him i can see why people might think that he said something like that sure but he definitely preached the gospel with words okay okay yeah. well well, now I'm even more excited to hear what he had to say. Yeah, yeah, he's an he's an interesting character. It's kind of like this. Uh, imagine like <clears throat> we talked about William Wilberforce and that life of luxury that he grew up in, and then when he became a Christian, he turned his focus into his work, uh, but he didn't like necessarily leave that life altogether. So imagine someone that you know who just grew up very wealthy very Mm. comfortable and then all of a sudden you're walking down the road one day and you see someone who who doesn't just look homeless but objectively is like you know they they are without a home they are you know dressed in rags and uh they're living very simply and you realize oh that's my buddy that i grew up with who is really wealthy and comfortable what happened and that's kind of the story of francis or the beginning of his life almost in a nutshell a real riches to rags tale you know yeah but by choice and oh wow okay. yeah i'll tell you the i'll tell you the story but i have to mention especially for those who might be listening who know a little bit about francis you might not be completely satisfied with the way i tell his story and as i've researched francis i've realized that that's actually pretty common because Hmm. he's so he's actually a difficult guy to like learn about because there's so many stories that are connected to his life and they range from very uh, like historical sounding stories of um just his life growing up and his conversion uh to christianity and then there's also stories that almost sound like something you read in a collection of fairy tales huh and it's very interesting so gk chesterton wrote a little uh, biography on saint francis of assisi and mm-hmm. i think it's a really good one to read if you're interested in learning more about francis and understanding kind of like who this person is the time frame that we're looking at is in let's see the day he was born he was born in 1181 
okay. year of our Lord. Okay. And uh, Italy, I'm guessing. Yep. Okay. And he was. It was. It was an interesting time because, like, we're kind of coming coming out of the Middle Ages at this time in, in history. Mm-hmm. And Chesterton, when he's talking about Francis and where he sits in history, he talks about how it's important to realize, like, where he sits in history, which is coming out of this time when, uh, you know, that we call it the Dark Ages, but there was a time of just, like, immense suffering. Uh, there was kind of civilizations was eroded after the fall of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And, like, there's just... Uh, it's not like everybody was stupid during that time, but it was also just truly dark in many ways. And it felt like kind of paganism just ran rampant and had its way with culture and there's this one quote from his uh, biography Chesterton puts it this way so he's talking about coming out of those uh, kind of middle ages dark ages time frame and he says gradually against this gray background beauty begins to appear as something really fresh and delicate and above all surprising Love returning is no longer what was once called platonic, but what is still called chivalric love. The flowers and stars have recovered their first innocence. Fire and water are felt to be worthy to be the brother and sister of a saint. The purge of paganism is complete at last. For water itself has been washed. Fire itself has been purified as by fire. Water is no longer that water into which slaves were flung to feed the fishes. Fire is no longer that fire through which children were passed to Moloch. Flowers smell no more of the forgotten garlands gathered in the garden of Priapus. Stars stand no more as signs of the far frigidity of gods as cold as those cold fires. They are all like things newly made and awaiting new names from one who shall come to name them. Neither the universe nor the earth have now any longer the old sinister significance of the world. They await a new reconciliation with man, but they are already capable of being reconciled. Man has stripped from his soul the last rag of nature worship and can return to nature. While it was yet twilight, a figure appeared silently and suddenly on a little hill above the city, dark against the fading darkness. For it was the end of a long and stern night, a night of vigil, not unvisited by stars. He stood with his hands lifted, as in so many statues and pictures, and above him was a burst of birds singing, and behind him was the break of day. Mm. So Chesterton sees Francis as like this guy who had this very interesting relationship with nature in a way that I would say a lot of of modern uh, evangelicals in particular struggle with Uh, and we can get into that uh, in a bit but he's painting this picture of you know culture had a a unhealthy relationship with the natural world and that it was being worshipped and Francis standing in kind of in between like you know the, the modern world where we are now and this old world where like magic was like rich and thick in the air and he's rediscovering nature in a sense so very very interesting character and Chesterton points out how hard it is to uh, tell the story because either uh, you could you know look at it simply from a very you know almost scientific perspective and not talk about his his religious life at all or you could only talk about like all these like miracles and weird things that happen and neither of those would be quite doing Francis um, you know uh, telling his story correctly he so, sounds like a Celtic Christian you almost know? but he's in Italy it's so yeah. weird like yeah yeah but the influence has got to be there right this is a few hundred years actually but no yeah because he's not part of the of the European world that was affected by the Celtic uh, missionaries so yeah it's just he's just he just did happen to invent the wheel in a different part of the world. Really, he did. Like, I think that's why he's such a fascinating character in history and why his movement, as we'll find, picks up speed so fast is because I think he was speaking a language to people that was l- very suppressed at that point. Yeah. And uh, just the way he lived life was very fascinating. So anyway, let's let's tell a story a little yeah, bit. Yeah, let's get into it. So, like I said, he was born in 1181 to an Italian father 
and a French mother. And he was born, I believe he was born in Assisi okay. in Italy. And his father was like this rich merchant guy who was a seller of fine cloths. And um, his father was just in love with French culture. And his father was actually away on business when Francis was born, and his mom had had him baptized, and his his uh, name given to him at his baptism was Giovanni, after John the Baptist. Oh, that's a good name. Yep. And his dad got back and was like, like didn't really like the religious influence at all, and renamed him uh, Francisco, which is basically the Frenchman. Mm-hmm. He really liked that that French culture and that rich kind of refined uh, lifestyle, and so that's how he was raised. He, he was he grew up wealthy. Francis uh, liked to party, as you know. He grew up. He was a big spender, uh, and we get this sense that he really cared a lot about what people thought of him, and he really wanted to be well liked. He wanted to be respected, and but he wasn't really finding that satisfaction in kind of that rich lifestyle and one early story we have of francis is he was selling his dad's cloth and velvet in uh the town square in the marketplace and a beggar came to him and was asking for for money and uh he goes and he chases after the beggar once he gets off work basically and he he finds him and he gives him everything that he had uh, in his pockets and his friends just mock him and his father was pretty mad at him like we don't do that like yeah. that's not how that's not how we do things and so he kind of wanted some satisfaction that came really from anywhere but he wasn't finding it with the wealth and so he kind of sought it through nobility and so at this time there was a lot of kind of like warring states you know in in his country and so he went to a fight with an army um presumably i think for like you know his his state essentially at around the age of 21 okay and he ended up becoming a prisoner of war and spending some time uh basically in jail and he got super sick Mm. almost died and at that point as a lot of people who end up in prison do he's doing some reevaluation. <laughs> yeah, yeah and uh he thought that he was gonna switch things up but when he went back when he got out of jail he went back to his cc he kind of returned to that lackadaisical kind of lifestyle again um then we start to see things really start to pick up speed so then he finds out about another war that he can go uh uh, go fight in and again for him this was all about gaining like respect you know and people like respecting him and honoring him he wanted that nobility and so he's on his way this is in 1205 I think he's like 24 25 years old now he's on his way to go enlist in the army of uh, Walter the Third, Count of Brienne and while he's on his way he has this strange vision that makes him return to Assisi like one day later mm-hmm. and he kind of loses interest in this rich worldly life that he was living and uh, people are just starting to be pretty confused by him his dad is not happy uh, at this point he's really starting to cross ways with his dad more and more and then he starts doing even more interesting things like he always liked you know wearing fine clothes and being clean and all that and he's riding on his horse one day and he sees a leper on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. And he goes and he's, he gets off his horse and he goes and he, he uh, kisses uh, the leper's hand. And the leper kisses him back. And then he like turns around and like the leper was gone. And Francis later would tell people that he was basically pretty sure that, that was like a test from yeah, God. Yeah, like an angel. Like an angel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's really searching at this point. I, I think he goes to a pilgrimage to Rome around this time. Uh, and then when he's back uh, in Assisi, he's at this little country chapel outside um, Assisi. And he has, this, he has this vision, which is truly, I think, the turning point of his life where he uh, hears God say to him, Go and repair my church, which, as you can see, is falling into ruins. And... 
in Francis's mind, he's thinking this must mean like little C church because he's in this like old kind of abandoned chapel. It's all dilapidated. And he's like, okay, God wants me to like use my money to fix this place up. So he goes and he sells a bunch of his father's stuff and takes like basically his profits from his business. And he uh, starts to work to restore that church and gives the money to that church. And his dad is totally incensed. And uh, he goes and he hides. He hides in a cave outside the city for like a month. And then when he returns, <laughs> uh, things had not gotten better. You know how like when you're a kid and you're like, you do something really bad and you're like, well, I'm just going to go sleep over at my friend's house for the night. And, you know, mom and dad will feel a little bit better once I get home. Like, I don't think I've ever done that. Did you, you never like tried to just avoid the wrath for a little bit to let things cool down? My parents you just took your lumps. Me. I had to, man. Yeah. yeah, they wouldn't have been like, oh, well, I guess I'll see you when you get home from Peter's house. You knew better. I, I had to, yeah. 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 I think that I would have gotten in more trouble. But I mean, hey, maybe you and Francis were onto something. Uh, well, I don't think, yeah, I don't think I ever avoided that either. But I feel like it's this, it's like this little wager you play in your mind. Like, yeah. Oh man, I think not being there would have gotten me into even more trouble. It's like if, it's like uh, you know, for for those of those of us in this world who were spanked when we were little and you like you put on like a, an extra pair of chonies you know to avoid yeah. it it's like that's just gonna probably make things worse for you kind of thing. yeah yeah unless it's really really like discreet <laughs> but I don't know yeah yeah so he uh, he hides for a month he comes back nothing changed <laughs> and uh, his his dad j- like drags him uh, home. Uh, he finds him on the edge of town. His dad drags him home. He beats him. He binds him with a rope, and he locks him in a storeroom. Oh, my gosh. And his father takes him to court, and he's like, you know, he lost all this money. He needs to pay it back. And he's uh, uh, wearing some nice clothes again. And in front of the judge, he basically, Francis, takes off the, the nice clothes he's wearing one by one until he's just wearing this, like, kind of rough like hair shirt um, very simple shirt and he completely renounces his father and his like claim to his father's um, inheritance and all that and at this point he starts to really see uh, God truly as being his father Um, and which I think is really actually kind of a beautiful part of this story Mm. for people who either have a terrible relationship with their father or don't have an earthly father uh, the the extent to which our heavenly father truly can be your father like this is not we don't just call God father because it's just a nice thing to call him but like truly like that that protection and that support and that love that that Francis should have received from his father, he is now for the rest of his life going to receive directly from God, mm-hmm. which I think is is beautiful. Yeah, he had this weird like opposite of the prodigal son story, where instead yeah. of the prodigal son being like a jerk about the inheritance, like it was the father being like, "Take your inheritance, value these earthly goods, like put this above anything else." Like that's that's really crazy. I mean, but I get it though. I'm sure that uh. Something like a like generational like inheritance was probably a really big deal because mm. parents probably thought, well, this is me securing the livelihood of my family for a long time. Yeah. But uh, but still, yeah, that's taking your own son to court for taking your stuff is pretty pretty wild. Yeah, really sad. Yeah. So he ends up becoming a beggar, and a friend gives him a simple cloak and a staff and the the girdle of a pilgrim so he's basically now living as a as a pilgrim as a wanderer mm. and he starts uh, just using his own two hands restoring the little uh, worn down chapels around Assisi in the countryside and he starts caring for lepers in these leper colonies that are nearby and people start to follow him actually like there's other people who are just fascinated with this way of life and from everything that I can tell from my studies, this wasn't like he was living in a time and place where there was just tons of like poor people and this just gave like all these poor homeless people something to do. It actually reads a little bit more like our culture, I think, where generally the standard of living is 
fairly high. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's work to be done if you want to work. And these people are actually choosing to step away from that and walk away from it. So he develops a simple rule, kind of like a monastic rule, you know, for those who would live in a monastery, even though they were homeless. And his rule was simply drawn from Matthew uh, 10, 9, which is one of the times when Jesus is sending his disciples out. And he tells them to not take any gold in their purses. Mm -hmm. So essentially what you have now is a group of people who have taken a vow, not just of poverty, but you find that these Franciscans, as they're going to be called, they don't even have like any personal property. Like they're fully against personal property. Is this a... Is this the first time the vow of poverty really really hit the monastic side of of church in the West? I don't think so, because I think prior to this, through the Middle Ages, you would have had monks um, who would have had vows of poverty and of some sort yeah francis i think was at a time in history where like he was what he was doing is even more radical than where you you might find like okay. some monks. so it was almost seen as like kind of an extreme monasticism i think so that's yeah. interesting okay yeah. yeah so he's he's at a he's at an interesting point in his life and people are starting to follow him and at some point around here he goes to rome to mm-hmm. seek approval from the Pope to, to uh, form an official new religious order. Now, I don't fully understand this whole religious order thing. Like, you might know more than I do, John, but, mm-hmm. like, um, I feel like the in the Catholic Church, like, it, <laughs> in our Protestant land where you and I come from, like, we kind of, like, if you want to start something, you just do it. Yeah. You know, and if it, and if it works, it works. Who's if it doesn't, stop it doesn't. Us. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we have you know, we answer to no one. <laughs> That's but right. The Lord Himself. That's right. <laughs> For the Catholics, if you wanted to have some sort of like be official, like you mm. needed the stamp of approval from the Church and from sure. specifically the Pope. This is similar to like what we were talking about last week with Wilgefortis, where it's like you could do stuff kind of on your own, but if it's going to be official. Like this yeah. whole folk saint thing. You got to like, get the stamp. It needs you gotta approval. Get the approval yeah. Mother Church. So I, I feel like it, it's got to be like a, he got to be on a waiting list to talk to the Pope. Like he's just some just some smelly beggar who's been fixing fixing churches, right? Well, that's interesting. You said that. So when he somehow gets a, so I think it's like some some like uh, lower bishop or priest in Rome kind of like gives him like helps him get there in front of the Pope. Yeah, and the Pope is basically like whatever like dude like no and sends him on his way and then there's Mm. a few different stories of what happened next but essentially the pope saw him like one story i read i think the pope was like uh no but you can take care of the pigs and like francis did it like he just goes out and like starts doing this really kind of like menial work and it impressed the pope so much that he changed his mind and actually gave them the stamp of approval to have a new Order. He must have taken some really nice care of those pigs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, dude. They were, they, knowing were, they were glistening. Francis probably did take good good care yeah. of pigs. That's that's really cool. Yeah. So the this this religious order thing is interesting because now he kinda like it's official and it's gonna start to pick up uh steam. Yeah. So he goes. Do you have something you're gonna say? No. I, no, no, it looked like <laughs> looked like a joke. I, I thought maybe like no, no. It was going to be something like, like, uh, oh, well, yeah, you can have an order when pigs fly. And then Francis was like, check it out. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me just uh, take care of these. And then, uh, yeah, it was a joke that didn't really have a, didn't have a landing. Yeah, I think line. we just lost some subscribers. Yeah. Gosh, dang it. All right. Don't worry. I'll have something really good for the end of the episode. Okay. Okay. Sweet, sweet. Yeah. So he goes back to his CC. This is around the time that um, he meets a. Uh, he, so Francis is preaching in one of uh, these little chapels outside of a CC. Yeah. And this rich young woman named Claire hears him, mm-hmm. and she's so impacted by his preaching uh, and the, his way of life that she uh, decides to follow in this uh, pattern as well. And because this order that the Pope had approved was for men. Uh, Claire becomes the first of essentially what we have is like the female order of Franciscans hmm. called the Poor Clares, and not as good, yeah, not as good of a name. <laughs> yeah, they uh, obviously are named after her, and she kind of starts developing this following of like women now that want to take on this vow of poverty and yeah. live in this way. 
and uh, they're grouping up and they're going out and they're preaching in the countryside. They're uh, they're serving people. They're taking care of the lepers. And so it definitely was a word ministry that they were mm-hmm. doing. Like this wasn't. Um, we'll talk about this a little bit in a minute. A lot of Franciscans throughout history have been goofballs, dude. Like. Hmm. Not not the best trajectory after Francis, but when Francis is around, I mean, they had a, they had a pretty good like hand on like word and deed. I think yeah, which was cool. So the, the just just so I'm straight, the philosophy of the Franciscans was essentially to be this kind of like traveling traveling like bunch of. Uh, you know, essentially beggars. Like they, they had sw- they had no money to their name. They had no property or anything like that. And they were to travel to serve the poor and the needy, and just try to bless the community. Right. It seems like they really got their identity from the type of ministry that Jesus was commissioning the apostles to have in, I think it's Mark 6 and Matthew 10, where he's sending them out to uh, two by two. Yeah. And uh, no, don't really take any possessions with you. Like the Mormons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because they travel in Paris. Those homies have possessions, <laughs> yeah. let me tell you. <laughs> true. Hey, that's a they don't Argent- mind their vow of poverty because they're going back to their Salt Lake mansion. Yeah, that ticket to Argentina mission trip isn't going to pay for itself, <laughs> my boy. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so they, they seem to really get a lot of their, their identity from that, and they were just kind of living off of the... Um, just the gifts of yeah. others to, to let them continue their ministry. Um, Francis did some pretty cool stuff around this time, too. He actually traveled out of Italy. There was a crusade going on at this time. It was the Fifth Crusade. This oh is in uh, 1219. So he's 38 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, this crusade, the, go- <laughs> the way they were going to try to get to the Holy Land this time was they were going to capture Egypt first. And mm-hmm. then from there, kind of like let that be their, their head of operations to then fight and take Jerusalem. And uh, there was a sultan of Egypt at this point. And okay. there was some sort of like... Uh, uh, like, oh, what's the word for it? Not a truce, but like, the two armies were going to take a break. Yeah. and Like a little ceasefire. Ceasefire. Maybe? There yeah. we go. Uh, and Francis travels across enemy lines, secures a meeting with the sultan, and preaches the gospel to him. Yeah. To like the, the leader of this army that the church was fighting. And uh, there's varying, you know, interpretations of what exactly happened there, whether the Sultan converted or not, but it was a profitable meeting either way and he didn't get killed and uh, he ended up making it back to, you know, the the side the side of the church. And when he comes back from that trip to Egypt, there's his little Franciscan order has sh- like skyrocketed and there's like 5,000 people now that wow. are part of the brotherhood. And there's this pressure coming to like control the brotherhood and it's gaining kind of some notoriety. And so some people want him to kind of take a, take a, some, you know, stronger hold on the reins and other people kind of want to take, and it's starting to get a little bit political. Yeah. And he, at this point, kind of withdraws a little bit from kind of the, the leadership of it. And then the, the end of his life, which is not uh, that much later, he's, so he's 45 years old when he dies. He was oh, young. Yeah. And there's a few interesting things that happen towards the end of his life. Um, one is, have you ever heard of the stigmata? Yeah. It's like the marks. Yeah, yeah, the marks on the hands, right? Mm-hmm. The Jesus' holes. Yep, wounds. on the hands and the, the feet. And so he has this vision where he's visited. I can't remember if it's, the story goes he's, he's visited by an angel or by Jesus himself. But he receives these, these wounds that never heal, and it's the stigmata. It's basically uh, wounds in his hands and his feet and I think maybe his side, just like Jesus' wounds. And... I was like doing some research on the stigmata. It's very interesting. I'd love yeah. to talk with a Catholic uh, and and have them be able to explain to us like how this fits kind of in the in the Christian life. It's, mm-hmm. it's very confusing to me. Like hmm. w- like where this comes from. Like the people who receive the stigmata. My my kind of skepticism goes like these are self inflicted wounds that people are taking to kind of like try to follow in Jesus's steps and not God like showing up to people in visions and being like, 
just messed up your hands for forever. Like <laughs> that's just, I don't know. Something doesn't quite sit right with me yeah. about that. Like it's persecution coming from God, you know? Yeah. Um, Imagine the first day after the stigmata and you're like just pouring like, hand soap in your hand when you're about to wash yourself in the shower this goes it's right like, through Whoop. it yeah <laughs> that's all i had to say i'm really trying to up the color commentary because yeah. i just i don't have much to share i'm just trying to be goofy no 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 um yeah. no, no no i uh it reminds me of julian though because julian talked a lot about how did her, she have the stigmata she didn't but a big part of her life was like she wanted to like suffer and experience that suffering with Christ. Hmm. So I feel like receiving the stigmata is like it's it's a blessing where God has given you a suffering that is so like intimately close with Jesus that it's that Jesus carries that wounds to this day in his glorified state. Mm, yeah. So I w- I would just guess it was something like that. And you know, the Middle Ages they were all about emphasizing the suffering of Christ, which is good. I I mean, I I think it is not incorrect to say that God allows and even uh, can uh, be to, to bring about or orchestrate suffering in the life of the believer for his glory and their benefit. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, especially you compare it to today. Like we we see suffering as the as the absence of God. Right. Um yeah, I mean, like... It's look, just the weird, like, vision-inflicted thing that's kind of... visions back then, man. I mean, like, this This is, uh... I don't know. I mean, like, uh, this is something from... This one we'll reference way, way later when we do a very, very different topic. But I feel like before, before the Enlightenment is there to tell them what is quote-unquote scientifically proven like a vision that you experience is just as real as if you were to walk outside and mm, see something that, that's good yeah. so like that was just like they they had no separation between vision and reality for the most part especially religiously significant visions yeah uh but yeah i get you dude it's 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 a different world it's a different lens to view the world for sure yeah um yeah and i want, and I, I want to lean in that direction and, and be able to ask the question like what are the things that we lost actually in the enlightenment and understanding of of god's world as he as he's wrapping up his life he writes uh this prayer that is worth looking up it's called the canticle of the sun Mm. and it'll give you a decent idea of of his theology he he references and i'll talk more about this in a minute but he references parts of creation as being like his brother and his sister so he talks about like his Lord, not like God, but like his Lord, his brother, the Son. This is Canticle of the S O N. S U N. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. S. I meant to say that, but my brain said something different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, actually, I have it. I have it up here. Um, so, like, uh, praise be you, my Lord, uh, through sister moon and the stars in heaven. You form them clear and precious and beautiful. Praise be you, my Lord, through brother wind and through the air cloudy and serene and every kind of weather through which you give sustenance to your creatures praise be you my lord through sister water which is very useful and humble so he's talking about water and fire and wind and the moon and the sun and like i said if you if you get the hives about that sort of thing like you're going to read that prayer and be like is he praying to like the elements here like what right. what's going on i think that at the end of the day, he just had a really, really robust doctrine of creation. Yeah. And he understood the the goodness that God had built into the creation mm. and the commonality that he shared with creation being a created being himself. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really interesting to me. So there's a dude who I, I really want to do an episode on in the future. His name is uh, St. John of Damascus. Oh, yeah. And so St. John of Damascus is one of the key dudes from uh, – he's one of, like, the great fathers of the Eastern Orthodox tradition because he's, you know, from Damascus, from Syria. And uh, – he was a pivotal figure in the East when they were arguing about whether they should use icons or not. Mm-hmm. And, a, and he was obviously a big proponent of using icons as a means of worship. The opposite side would say it's idolatry. And I was reading some of his quotes, and he often said things like, um, like, 
it is through matter that we experience the like the essence of its creator and so i i was kind of thinking of that when i'm listening to francis talk about creation because they would both come to the same conclusion like like Matter is not a thing to itself be worshipped. It is a conduit that brings us towards its maker. Like even even the idea that we see in the Psalms. Yeah, of that's what the, I was just thinking. Yeah, yeah, the 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 heavens declare the glory of of God. Um, so it is interesting this idea of like no matter is not bad. Like matter is actually beautiful. And it was through these arguments that Saint John won the Eastern Church over to using icons, which they still do to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is interesting. Yeah. So there's a couple stories uh, that I want to tell you to kind of illustrate kind of what his relationship to like animals were like, what what that was like. Okay. Very right. very fascinating. So there's one popular story of Francis where he's preaching to birds and there's this flock of birds and and they're gathering around him and he basically is just like I'm just gonna like paraphrase he's basically like hey guys you should give thanks to the creator for making you and like use your little bird voices to praise him for all of his good deeds and he's just like admonishing these animals to just be good little animals and praise the creator and then he's like, okay, you're dismissed. And then like they, they take off. <laughs> they just flew off. Yeah. There's another story where um, there's this wolf that as in this uh, town in the countryside that has been killing people. And he. Oh, he's going to get a talking to. He does. Yeah. yeah. And the people want to kill the wolf. And he's like, no, 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 don't, don't kill the wolf. And uh, he goes to the edge of the town where the wolf is and he approaches him and he does the sign of the cross towards Ooh. the wolf and then he starts talking to him and he's like, listen, wolf, you've done a lot of really bad things. Mm-hmm. You've killed some people. You need to stop that and uh, you need to calm down and the people of this town will take care of you. And that happened. The The wolf like goes into the town. The people just start to feed it, you know, not humans and he becomes like this town pet for the for the people of this town yeah so there's this chesterton quote that i feel like helps here where chesterton says the reader cannot even begin to see the sense of a story that may well seem to him a very wild one until he understands that to this great mystic his religion was not a thing like a theory but a thing like a love affair hmm yeah, that's honestly probably the best description of how mystics see the world, which is it's it's experiential, you know? And I think that he experienced the world through his relationship with nature through through nature to the creator yeah which is which is super celtic dude Mm. which is very because like we like we established there's no those spheres of influence most likely did not overlap with each other but again the whole point of this podcast is we're recognizing it's not like the church is not limited to cultural influence the church is ultimately influenced by the spirit of god which moves in one accord and affects many people in different ways but this is very clearly like the gospel piercing this dude's heart into a recognition of the natural world and seeing the fingerprints of God all over it. Yeah. And he's, I, so I actually find these stories to be quite believable. Yeah. I'm sure there's been some, like, some stuff added to it, like the game of telephone. But the idea of him talking to animals and, like, encouraging animals to be good animals I think is totally realistic I think a good way to illustrate this would be like uh, so we've got this little book in our house it's a kid's book and it's uh, stories of the saints and on the front there's a picture of Francis and he's wearing like this hood and in front of him is this wolf Mm -hmm. and uh, my son Ransom comes to me recently and and we hadn't read that, that story yet in the book and he was like and this is Satan on the front. He's like talking. My son's young, and he's like, and that's Satan, the wolf, or whatever. And I was like, nobody. I was like, that's Brother Wolf. And he's like, what? I was like, your yeah. son's already allegorizing, that's re- dude. That's yeah, I know. Theologically, very unhealthy. <laughs> so, well, it's interesting because, like, you read the story, and it's like the same thing. I think happened for my son that that happened for. Um, 
you know the people of this town where it's just like here's this animal that is dangerous that is kind of like associated with the idea of evil sometimes yeah and like he's calling it's like he was trying to call the future into the present and what i mean by that is i think i think francis had a good grasp on what the reality of the resurrection will ultimately mean for all of creation Mm-hmm. I think about um, Romans 8. I was thinking about this this past week. Somebody saw that I was studying Francis, and uh, this is somebody that I that I love and I have a lot of respect for, but they they, they were kind of asking, like, why? Like, why are, you, why are you, like, reading about Francis? And I think part of that might be because Franciscans have been, like I said, really stupid throughout a lot of history. Within like a few years of Francis dying, the Franciscans became like the inquisitors for like these like oh witch God. hunts. Like it really? just like within like five years. Like it's just it's it's insane. You know, dude, I wanna say like the the more the more we study church history from different eras, the more it kind of feels like like you're watching Avengers movies and you're seeing like the timeline overlap with each other. Yeah. And it's like to think that like we talked about the Inquisitors killing witches during our Salem witch trials episode, yep. and like some of them were you know these dudes, <laughs> these yeah. Guys. And that's then crazy. Throughout history, Franciscans have been known for being pretty weak and lax theologically and mm-hmm. they, they're kind of like on the the liberal fringes of the of the catholic church like in today for example richard Rohr, mm-hmm. dork master supreme dude we do not <laughs> like richard Rohr here if you do keep listening to us so that you can learn better he's an he's an interesting guy he's not he's a very interesting guy he's He's got this. He's got this universal, yeah, unif- pun intended, yeah, uh, like appeal to him that makes him almost inherently threatening. It's like this guy is. Uh, no, I know. I know. Yeah. Some of you just got butt hurt, and most I mean, people, I would not encourage to listen to Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr, guys, ah, it's 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 really hard to justify listening to a universalist. I do sometimes, but really just because I like to learn. But oh, man, yeah. You're absolutely. If right. Richard Rohr was like, "I'm absolutely not a Christian," and then he said the same things he does, I'd be like, "Oh, this guy's like kind of pointing towards truth." But the problem is, is he like is supposedly supposed to be a ca- good Catholic, but well, and the Catholic Church hasn't removed his priesthood status, so right. Which I don't know. know what they're doing over there in New Mexico. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to them. We're gonna make so many people oh, irritated with yeah, us. Sorry, in this we're episode. off on the Richard Rohr tangent, man. Um, All right. Well, at this point, I think it's just how many lo- listeners can we lose? Let me try um, to tie it together. Yeah, yeah. Hit it. Hit me. I feel like what Francis had a good grasp on was I, I think about Romans eight when it talks about. Oh, I, I was I was in the middle of a story. So mm-hmm. um, this person made a comment that was like, "Oh, so you know." It's Franciscans, like, you know, they're always talking about, uh, you know, it, uh, creation care as biblical justice. And I just pondered that. I didn't respond to them in the moment, but, I was, but I've been thinking about that. Is creation care biblical justice? Is uh, caring for animals, caring for our environment biblical justice? And I think that a lot of people in, in more theologically conservative and politically conservative camps uh, which I am, I am one of those. Would kind of balk at that, those that language because it sounds like something from a political agenda that you don't want to be a part of. But then you got to actually wrestle with scripture. So like even in, under the law and in, in the old covenant, there's all sorts of stuff in the law about like how to take care of animals. Simple things like don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Like that's one of the laws that you know Yahweh gives to His people. Simple things that are oftentimes about just kindness to the created world around us, and how to care for um, livestock, how to care for wild animals. And then in the New Covenant, we have stuff like in Romans eight, where it talks about um, all of creation being subjected to futility because of sin, and all of creation groaning in anticipation of the sons of God being revealed. So Paul in Romans talks about all of creation, not just humans, but also the non-human creation waiting for a day when the curse of sin will no longer affect it 
because they are affected too. Animals, yeah. our environment, all of it bears the marks of a world, a universe that has been affected by sin. And so if we're talking about, you know, a day coming when there will be new heavens and a new earth and a new creation, and this world will be renewed, like what does that mean for animals? Well, one signpost to the coming kingdom is Christians take good care of animals. Yeah. Like we shouldn't have a problem saying that, but I think sometimes we do for some reason. I think it's the line in the sand that was drawn where we feel like there are certain virtues and values that signify conservative a perspective right. and then the same thing on the liberal or, pers- or uh, progressive perspective like environmentalism always seems like it was kind of it was it was always in the face of big corporate entities because it was always big corporations that were doing massive loads of damage to rainforests or who were spilling oil off of coasts and bays and stuff like that and so it seems like it was always it was always the the progressive viewpoint to say whoa we got to watch you know the, the, the tree hugger stereotype but for me i mean literally like i i never thought once about the christian responsibility for care and i was listening to uh the christian hip-hop group deep space five and i remember where i was i was where i was driving <laughs> and uh which was legitimately the group that got me into listening to hip-hop, and I think I was 20 years old, and they have a song called Murder Creek, which is a hard freaking name for yeah. a song. Yeah, yeah. And they had a line. They had a line in the song that said, I think I remember it exactly, and it was, um, the face of God is manifest in his creation. Defacing the earth is disrespecting his reputation. Wow. And I just like heard that, and I paused the song, and I was like, Oh, all right, I guess I'm switching sides on that view. <laughs> Where I was just like, yeah, this is, I mean, like, we see, the, like, the creation story is, like, one of the most ubiquitous, like, ever, like, all, known all over the place stories of the Bible. And yet, it's so easy. And I, and I think that a, a big part of it really boils down to we don't we don't think that god really cares about creation we think that god's gonna gonna hit the detonate yeah. button if your if your eschatology involves god nuking everything yeah then it kind of makes sense and the problem is it's it, it is an eschatological problem but deep down it's a problem of it's it's gnosticism mm-hmm. like you know this was a, a big foundational view that uh both thomas and i's seminary is like built on which is that as westerners we are steeped in this very like uh platonic neo-platonic view that if something is spiritual it is by nature benevolent and if, if something is material then it's then it's inherently corrupt right. and for god to um, you know, defile himself like that. That got that God like to become material was actually a defiling of himself, and that even to this day his material state is somehow negative. And again, getting back to something that Saint John of Damascus said, like he has this quote where again he's fighting for the use of icons, which you know we're not pro icon, um, but he said something like. Um, because of the incarnation, I salute all remaining matter with reverence, Hmm. which is like if Jesus himself, the son of God could wear, could cloak himself in a material presence, then the material, then then the material world cannot be inherently bad because Christ cannot be inherently bad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, dude, I mean like I, creation care is biblical justice right. i think it's and I think it doesn't water clear. down i think the concern is that to say that would water down the atonement and it's like no actually because of the atonement because god made human beings to be the ones that take care of his world they're messed up because of sin the atonement restores them to the to the place where they can now take care of all of these things once more. Like it's mm-hmm. actually a beautiful fulfillment of the gospel and a sign that the kingdom of God has come now that people are able to go, oh wow, God has renewed my heart. I'm a new person. I don't live for myself. I live for my Lord. I'm gonna take care of these animals and these lepers and like everything around me. Like it's yeah. really beautiful. And yeah. I wish the Franciscans had stuck with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And honestly, dude, I mean like this, uh this, I mean, this is similar to how we kind of closed out our, our Wilberforce episode, but William Wilberforce 
brought so many things to in into the view of England into the western world to say this is the face of the atrocities that were that were that we're living on like i feel like creation care and recognizing areas in which we are like destroying the earth that we are are creating an environment for for animals that is completely like un- unlivable that is that is that is inexcusable for us as stewards like these are like i i would love to have christians who would be like yeah like we're we're advocating for as much you know uh good good living conditions for the animals that we that we farm that we use for meat like i would love to see christians standing behind things like that yeah because that is creation care because that is a a biblical thing to stand i've got people in my church who are dead serious about that like yeah pay quite a bit of attention to that and i love that like i i love the idea that um because it also shows that christians who are moved by the spirit of god should not be stuck within the cultural corners that we have found ourselves like that is honestly i think one of the interesting themes we see throughout church history excuse me is where the people of god are moved beyond what culture expects of them francis in this story culturally should have received the exorbitant wealth of his family and of his lineage and just lives to be another rich italian suitor without a worry in the world but the spirit of god had bigger plans for him Mm -hmm. and i think that as christians we need to continue to be like to have an ear open to the spirit of god and where it's pushing us against the cultural current of our culture even our christian culture yep um amen yeah dude well that's francis yeah, it's I was sick, dude. I, I'm the... so glad I know more about Francis now, and I can I can see why that lousy quote could be attributed to him. But also, I think I think Homie was a little bit more grounded than yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. So, yep. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for tuning in. Yeah, that was great, man. Well, uh, well, yeah. Well, guys, we will uh, we'll catch you next time. We're um. I think I mentioned it last week, but we're going to do another episode pretty soon, probably in a few weeks, where we're going to do kind of a Q&A. So uh, we, would, we would highly encourage you guys to send your cues so that we can offer A's in return. And we have to, we have to call out BenWatson.jpg, yeah. who said he was going to send us in some cues and this guy, didn't send this them guy in. This guy cracks me up, dude. Yeah, he's a... Uh, yeah, he's a, he's a funny dude. I'm glad I'm glad we have his follow. Um, yeah, yeah, but dude. Ben, if you... Send you know, your question in, Ben. Don't talk your talk without... Uh, actually, no, you need to talk your talk. Because yeah. right now, you've just been walking your walk. So let's see what you got, dude. Um, all right, dudes. Blessings. We love you guys. Uh, we'll catch you next time. God bless you.